0: Thank you. Um, I didn't really know quite what I was going to be doing um, at a hybrid session of this kind. Um, Mark said talk about Irish manuscripts, but an opportunity to talk to book designers um, encouraged me to ride one or two hobby horses, um, which I shall do early, and then talk about Irish manuscripts in a way that relates to those hobby horses. For a long time, my uh, historical and literary interests, which are very, very hard to classify, are categorised by seeing things very much in a multi-layered way. Um, And if you get your hands on the O'Flaherty book uh, later this year, you'll find that I'm taking a body of correspondence and working forwards from it and backwards from it and downwards from it and then outwards from the downwards. and It involves very long notes, and it will have to have a good index. But it explores the riches of how things connect and lead on and lead on. And to do that, one needs a complex page. So for as long as I've been using books seriously... I've always loved books that have footnotes and side notes and footnotes to footnotes. Um, I don't know how many of you will have come across the works of Thomas Amory, Irish-born 18th century writer. Uh, Impossible to categorise. One doesn't know how much uh, of any aspect of his life is fiction. I suspect half his biography is fiction. Um, A work, uh, what's it called, The Lives of... Some Ladies of Great Britain or Monuments of Antiquity, 1755, <laughs> has a wonderful excursus uh, imitating Martin Martin on the Western Isles or The Life of John Buncle Esquire, 1756, Volume 2, 1766, um, feminist, Unitarian um, and... Full of extraordinary things, mathematics, Irish, but with footnotes that run across page after page after page and with footnotes to those footnotes. Well, Amory's barking mad, but, but I do like to see a book that allows me, as it were, to read a, a central uh, text and to see as it were, the subsidiary narratives going on in footnotes and side notes. And um, I suppose, I think, as far as beauty is concerned, late 17th, late 17th century printers had really got there in being able to do this very well. Some wonderful and Greek editions, Greek or Latin editions from the Sheldonian Press in the 1680s and 90s are marvellous works. But um, for the kind of thing I'm generally doing, It's the mid to late 19th century into early 20th century that provided um, a lot of the apparatus that really helps the reader. Um, Text with big footnotes, but big footnotes printed in two columns so that the eye doesn't have to struggle with following small type across full measure. Um, Side notes that when you're trying to find a particular discussion help you navigate through things quickly. Um, running heads that change from page to page. This sort of thing has pretty much gone from books in the second half of the 20th century. Um, The VCH in England, I suppose, carries on the two-column footnotes, but uh, uh, that's um, a hangover from an earlier age. Um, My day job, when I'm not entertaining myself with Irish antiquaries, is to work on medieval charters, 11th and 12th century charters from the Anglo-Norman realm, and medieval library catalogues. I have 16 volumes out of a 22-volume series on medieval library catalogues, which present very, very complex challenge. The text of a catalogue can be itself complex. Every aspect of it will need teasing out, and it has to be very precisely indexable, indexed to the line and half line, into the, to the sub-entry with a catalogue en- um, item. And in doing this kind of work, I've always had to do all my thinking of how I put the complexity of the text and what I'm trying to get out of the text onto the page. Um, even, as it were, thinking up for myself levels of punctuation. I want something that's bigger than colon and full stop. Where do we use the solidus? Where do we use spaced m dashes in articulating things in a blocked note on a complex entry? Editing a 13th century union catalogue, for example, you have to explicate the copies that are being represented by by simple numbers in the union catalogue. And uh, I've never had a designer... Um, it's always been left to me to do it and I I do it on the basis of comparing um, the work of some contemporaries that can be pretty unsatisfactory again, no designers Um, David Smith uh, had a comment on the standard of design in academic books I think earlier today Um, I've seen really, really rubbish design in presenting uh, medieval charters and it comes down to the editor not thinking about what was needed to put that material over. But 40 years ago, someone like the OUP, the editor would have had to deal with someone in the printing division who would have had a great deal more sense. And that sort of thing is just not made available uh, to us now. Um, I think I've done all right with my medieval library catalogues, but they're uh, published by the British Library where they do handle... Uh, designed books. I don't know what will happen with OUP um, and the charters. Um, So that's the background that I like to see lots of layers of things conveniently placed for the eye. One has to present the stuff so that the reader can make sense of it um, immediately and without having to turn to an explanation at the front of the book, especially if you're talking multi-volumes, as I am. So, um, Irish manuscripts. This sort of issue is not new. It's not even something that goes back to printing. Um, I'll use Irish examples here, but I could talk about um, these sort of issues with examples from... Um, Other countries, some classics from 12th, 13th century Paris would be available. But here we go. Um, Now, this book, uh, you may recognise the opening of Saint John's Gospel from Kells, had a designer, um, but you're not meant to read it. If you don't know what it says, turn over quickly. In principio erat verbum, and then at the last line, I'm saying et verbum because I know the next page begins eret in the beginning was the word and the word over the page was with God Um, but you're not there to read it you're there to engross yourself in uh, all this uh, intricacy if you ever got the chance to see it in the last 50 years this has been more accessible than it ever was before and surely the maker of it could never have foreseen that level of accessibility Um, This, a manuscript I rather prefer, I think is... um, This is good reading script, written 807-808 by Ferdovnach for the Abbot of Armagh. This is from the patrician dossier in the (coughs) Book of Armagh, whose whereabouts we know know about pretty well throughout its history from the 9th century to today... Um, and the scry is quite seriously calligraphic. If you look at the, uh, just above the middle of the left-hand column, incipient libri sancti patricii episcopi, ego patricius peccator rusticissimus, it is legible, um, but you have to keep your wits about you. The whole of the Book of Armagh was reproduced in print in 1913, and The editor must, I can't imagine what his transcript looked like, but the signals to the printer to use outsized letters and so on must have made it an extraordinarily difficult typographical job to represent the manuscript page by page, line by line, word by word, letter by letter, including alterations and marginal notes like the Z you see at the top right. You can uh, put the two in parallel, Potiti, the name of Patrick's grandfather, Potiti, with these extraordinarily calligraphic T's. You won't find that Z-like T um, elsewhere. This is a scribe who was aiming to look good as as well as, I think, be readable. Um, This is another scribe in the same manuscript, Scribe A, and he's taking advantage of the complete power that you have in manuscript uh, to lay out your page ad hoc as he wanted. He's got a list of names, and he's planned them into three columns, taking up more or less the space of one column. He's eaten into his uh, margin, but he's not uh, reduced the width of his left-hand column. And it finishes. Um, doesn't, the list doesn't continue on the next leaf. So he must have counted up his names. He's got a couple in the the lower margin. He decided that three columns was the best fit, but he could have decided to spread over onto the next page, um, or lay it out in other ways if he'd wanted to. Um, That's simply the same thing translated into print. And you can see from the print that the number of words in those columns is actually slightly denser. He's ignored his line rulings to some extent and gone down but if I go back you don't see three or four lines in the bottom margin in the manuscript in the way that you do in the printed copy. Um, That's just a a leaf for which I've got no reproduction of the manuscript Um, with the genealogy from the beginning of St Matthew's Gospel and he's using quite a lot of Um, spacing there it's all really to achieve the look that he wants rather than um, to communicate anything particularly complex there um, it's all look and it does become quite hard to read the end of St John's Gospel is here and we've got quotations from Gregory the Great's Moralia at either side. And the stuff at the top, I, can't, I haven't found, but it's got GG at either side. So that should be um, Gregory the Great 2. Today is the feast day of St Gregory the Great, by the way. Um, and in the middle there, the calligraphy has has really taken over. And one does begin to wonder how legible that would be. You know, if you were re- using this for the lesson, you might have the problem that uh, uh, Tim O'Neill mentioned And there is this translated into print. And whoever thought this was a a good idea, I I don't know. But the previous experience of facsimiles in Ireland would have been the 1870 and 1880 facsimiles of things like the Book of Leinster, which were achieved by paying Joseph O'Longan to copy the manuscript page by page, line by line, word by word, letter by letter, Uh, in black ink on white paper, from which they could then etch plates. They hadn't got a photographic process. This was perhaps cheaper. Now, here, um, a little bit later, this is towards the end of the ninth century, that was beginning. This is the Zangallan Priscian, one of the three great continental codices carrying Irish glosses. Priscian is a difficult Latin grammatical text uh, explaining higher grammar, and the glosses, there are thousands of glosses in Irish and in Latin, but the manuscript, I think, was not specially laid out to take them. It was written with a reasonably comfortable space, but I think it would have had that, that sort of comfortable space anyway. Though, whatever it was copied from, the glosses are not all primary glosses in this manuscript. There are linguistic forms in the glosses that take you back to archaic Irish rather than old Irish. So they would have been written down 200 years earlier than this. So the glosses are being copied, possibly from the exemplar, possibly from a second copy of the same work. Um, That just gives you a bit more detail. The chances of reading these glosses Well, it's pretty difficult. You need magnifying glasses. Or, in the last 12 months, the Swiss government has paid for an amazing website that has the Zankgalen manuscripts live, and you can go through four tiers of magnification, including two levels higher than than this. Brilliant stuff. Um, Now, that I would have called... There, go back. That I would call an insular hand, certainly an Iri- Irish, but um, in terms of general appearance, quite like you might find an Anglo-Saxon writing at uh, the same time, an Anglo-Saxon writing English, all at it, in um, uh, the mid to late ninth century. Whereas here we've got gone distinctively Irish, and you have a very big, formal text script. This is the Psalter of Saint Calmin. Um, you have some interlinear glosses see uh, but not every line by any means is glossed. You have outline as an annot- annotation at the top in a smaller hand, and this marginal annotation running all the way round. this is um, late tenth century, beginning of the eleventh century it 's the the first manuscript after a period of silence really and then this takes us a bit later from um, I, I pinched this from irish script on screen which is another wonderful resource um, it's the franciscan copy of the irish Liber Him norum killini a2 i think uh, now in ucd of course and the text is the altus prosator from the late 7th century Latin stanzas. And after each stanza, you get a block of annotation. And the block of annotation varies in length. And he's adjusted the size of script to accommodate it. But he has to know how much. You know, he's, um, he's operating on the basis of judging what space to leave between stanzas or else copying the annotation um, following the exemplar uh, occasionally you can see imperfections and did he just tuck that under because he didn't want to use another line or had he not left enough space or did he think that was the right way to do it anyway um, this is the same manuscript um, but I've now got a few leaves ahead um, to an Irish text so we have the text in text size it has its introduction The next explanation of what it is in Irish and you see the start at the left there of marginal commentary and that marginal commentary is quite extensive and it carries on down the left hand side of the page but doesn't infect the right hand page Um, how far that was planned I don't know Um, the the same annotation is found in the other copy we have of these texts. So one might well think, yes, there's an exemplar behind The two, te- two copies are roughly contemporary. There's an exemplar behind it. At some level, there ought to be planning behind these. And that takes us to the end of the text and the commentary introducing um, the next text, Cantemus in Omni Die, we've changed back to Latin. Um, that's the way the Libem Norum is. It moves between the two languages pretty freely. This is a less well-known manuscript, um, Oxford Rawlinson B505. Um, the Oxford Irish manuscripts are not on the Irish script on screen. Most of them are available through the early manuscripts uh, side of the... Bodleian website, but not this one because it's just the back leaf of a large Latin manuscript and I'm afraid I think the people organising the digitization didn't read far enough down the catalogue to realise there was 12th century Irish material. The text here is Félia Angusa, um, the Martyrology of Angus. Each line of script represents four lines of verse, a metrical quatrain. And you can see we've got little bits of interlinear Glossing. This is a work with uh, commentary of some bulk. So that the previous slide showed you January and then this is the commentary on January and the introduction to the next month. And the amount of interlinear glossing increases. You can see the start of February has more. Um, the page is beginning to look quite peppered and then the block of commentary on the stanzas for that month. Commemorate each verse commemorates the saints of a particular day, and that's blown up so that you can see some of the busyness going on and the, um, the marks to articulate where notes are going to be um, hung onto it. So you've got something there structured to invoke the, uh, the annotation. Um, the text uh, in print, well known in print Whitley Stokes 1880 in four columns and Stokes 1905 with the Henry Bradshaw Society Um, more of the same thing, we've probably had enough of um, that one but here I hope the detail is enough to show how he does it the ruling of lines is the same regardless of the size of script for text, he writes touching both lines and would leave a blank between the two lines for his uh, spacing. But where he's doing notes, he uses each line and the script sits on the line and doesn't touch the line above. So he can rule his page <coughs> without having to work out how many lines he needs at one height or another. Um, and the same principle is applied even in very elaborate um, Parisian-glossed Bibles of the 1160s and 70s, which have blocks of text running all the way around the page. Um, This is the Book of Leinster. Uh, The Book of Leinster, for the most part, left Ireland in the 17th century. One bit of it containing saints' uh, lives, well, martyrologies, uh, went to Louvain, and the main part went with Edward Hewitt to Oxford, They've both come back to Ireland subsequently. But this is the Killini part. Um, Irish script on screen for Trinity says, what we really wanted here was the Book of Leinster. But what we've got is 28 medical manuscripts. So this is from the Kilaini component. And this is a martyrology. Uh, for each date, you get the names of saints. Now, under a single date for Chef Munu, there are 240 names. And he's gone in for seven columns in the Trinity component, he does genealogies of the saints, and that's in seven columns. But if, if he's got this saint uh, traced back 30 generations and his 15th cousin, he'll trace the cousin back 15 generations and then use a signe de renvoi to tell you where you go to find the earlier 15 generations. So he was saving on space, but he hadn't really worked out how to lay out genealogies. This is Charles Hesmore, where you can see the large script represents the core text, the eighth century law text. And that text has been studied in law schools uh, for centuries since the eighth century, and manuscripts have built up a mixture of glosses and commentaries. And some of the same material will be found in commentary manuscripts, where you simply get snippets of text and more commentary. Uh, printing this sort of stuff is quite challenging um, the two editions of tracts uh, that have really attempted it as books uh, and Nariar, rely on breaking the thing down into small segments and interspersing um, the gloss and commentary material but they have also these days to introduce a translation and right? the, the texts of these um, law tracts is really quite difficult to understand. Um, so, translation is essential, and some of them exist in two, three, four manuscripts. So, if you start thinking of bringing in textual variants and a parallel translation, you can see that the complexity required for something like this um, is pretty daunting. And I don't think any of the editions. Um, either in AERU or those two modern ones from the Institute, have fully um, mastered it. But, of course, um, one won't have had the benefit of anyone who understands design or expressing these things on the page involved in putting the thing together. And I'll stop there. All right?